0: Hey, everyone. It's LaShonda from the Labors of Love podcast here with my co-host, Hetty Nam, and it's us today. Hey, y'all. <laughs> so I'm excited because this, I guess this would technically be like our first podcast together with no guest. You're not interviewing me or, you know, I'm not interviewing you and... You know, I love the way Jay said it, like, as we were preparing for this, he's like, so y'all just gonna like shoot the shit and record it. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes. that is, that is the beauty of intimate relationships that uh, agendas don't drive them. Um, You know, if you think about some of the people you feel the closest to, you know, for me, I'll speak for me. It's not about like, here are all the things we're going to do. And here's the timeline. It's about, I get to be with you and let's just see what emerges. So I'm excited to have this conversation today.
1: Yeah, me too. And I love what you said about the agenda. Like so many times when people gather, it's like, what are we going to do? Because we need to choreograph what we're doing. So I can get over the anxiety of like relating to you. And I'm like, we don't need an agenda, but we always have an agenda, which is to show up and connect and love on each other and like, see what happens. So that always feels good for me when I'm with you and other folks in my life that I just feel that connection with.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I don't know, it's, it's why for me, the podcast exists. And so it's, it's feels so good to, to have someone consistently holding this space with me and, and co-creating it. Um, so before we hit record, um, Jay always gets on me cause it's like so much good stuff that comes before and after. Um, it's not just, oh, you're hearing like it's the, the, what you actually get to hear as a listener is kind of the, the in between the bookends of some really great connection. And so Hetty and I kind of, as we just hopped on and we're checking in with each other before we hit record, we managed to not manage to like grief grief came up and we start being like, yes, and all the ways we were relating around grief and then some things we want to talk about around grief. So if anything, I would say like, here's the content warning if necessary. Like we want to be real. We want to be authentic and we want to just settle into our bodies around this very large integral human experience called grief. And so, Hetty, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk a little bit about your grief process, because I want to give you a very, very, very happy belated birthday shout out. Hetty's birthday was earlier this week. And yeah, so please share with the listeners what you shared with me about this unique opportunity you get every year, the week of your birthday, as you can, as you like sit and ponder life, you also get to sit and ponder death.
1: Yeah, thank you, Shonda. And thanks for that opening framing on grief. Before I get into it, I just want to share how good it feels somatically to create intentionally create safe a uh, uh, sacred space to talk about grief in a way that's not like, ooh, don't be too much. Don't show up like this. Like we're getting into it and we've provided the content warning. And oddly enough, like usually. The experience I had of folks grieving before was like empathy, but a little bit of tightness before I went through my own grief journey. And then now it's like, I feel like when someone brings up grief, my heart opens, my body melts, it relaxes because it's like, oh, it's okay to talk about this today, this topic that we're not like normally socialized to not talk about. So that felt really good. So yeah, I was sharing with... um. Jay, uh, Jay, and Shonda, Jay's listening. Um, when I hopped on, that uh, every year on my birthday. So, fifteen years ago, two thousand eight, uh, my birthday has always been um November thirteenth since I was born in eighty one. But in two thousand eight, my mom passed away on uh, November eighteenth. And so um, every week, every year, I get a unique week in November where I get to reflect on all of my revolutions around the sun and the journey that I've been on, Um, but also on death because my mom died pretty early. She died at the age of 57, um, and we could get into more about why later and the journey that I went on taking care of her in hospice for a month before she passed and what I learned from that. Um, But those memories are so vivid and I'm still unpacking all of the lessons from it. So I get this amazing opportunity to just ponder life and death.
0: And I don't know how many of us, thank you so much for sharing that. Let me start there. Uh, You know, death can be such this scary concept, thought, depending on people's um, relationship to life.
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: their relationship to death you know I think we people focus on people's relationship to death and how they move towards or away from grief but honestly I think it's people's relationship to life as well
1: I believe that because in the midst of life we are in we are also in the midst of death and not just to say like plants or insects or whatever around us are going through cycles of life and death and also folks around us are there's new life being born and folks who are passing away um but also like part of getting older is you are like regenerating and your cells are dying off like and so your your body itself is going through cycles and part of the process of maturation it actually gets you closer to death Mm-hmm. And I believe that death is a portal. So uh, there's things that I am still scared about, but there's things that I'm I'm excited about as I get older, as I start looking at life. Um, being born is to life as um, dying is to death. And I believe in like, all my ancestors are here with me. The spirit of my mom is with me. And so it's just like a different relationship. But I know that's not the usual conventional, like mainstream dialogue.
0: Which I appreciate. I, 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 I'm I grateful that we can have this discussion because I believe there are going to be people listening who have never considered mm-hmm. any of these things. And yes, our cells regenerate and die every seven years. Mm -hmm. I always think it's interesting like when they like dog years or seven years like there's the seven the year of completion like all of these things right that I could probably go into about that and it's also I find it very interesting that in a capitalistic culture in which we live and have spent our lives there is a very strong um narrative around like don't you know once you start somewhere you got to keep moving keep producing mm-hmm. keep going got it da da, da da da, right but then when it comes to our actual lives and our bodies it goes stop don't get older yes. don't age yes. I mean, how conflicting oh how conflicting gosh. is the messaging around you know move experience grow do 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 all these things but then when it comes to the actual vessels that are holding the souls that are here to do those things. Everything is anti-aging, anti-aging, oh my gosh, yeah. anti-aging, right?
1: Totally. And it's like, it's almost like asking people to stop humaning. It's like, we can't stop ourselves from aging. And they're actually as sad as it is. So I'm not trying to like be Pollyanna-ish about death. Like, yay, death. Like It was a real pain and grief when my mom passed away. And when things end, there is a grief afterwards and a nostalgia, especially for things that were positive. But I'm like, the way that life and death cycle, it actually gives us opportunities for transformation. Like I am actively waiting for the death of late stage capitalism. Like there's certain things that the fact that we go through life and death cycles provides a lot of opportunity. You eat something, you have a bell movement, it leaves your body. It's like there's benefit to the life and death process that I think often we don't tap into at a spiritual level.
0: Absolutely. I want to draw listeners attention back to episode 67. So way, 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 way back. <laughs> um, But Cole Imprey, um, who is a thanatologist, study of death, Um, and she started the American School of Thanatology and she was on. And we talked about death in a way that I think if folks are kind of like intrigued, I would invite you to go back and listen to that episode. Um, Because when she talked about death being around us every day, like we'll say things like, oh, shoot, my phone died. Right. Like it's not a foreign concept, but when it comes to our temporal bodies and things like that, like we there's often this block. But I was sitting here thinking like, hmm, why is that? But I'll speak for me like death was terrifying to me, Mm -hmm. particularly when all the messaging I got is that there were only two options for me Mm -hmm. upon death, heaven or hell, and Mm -hmm it wasn't about death that would make the determination about which one of those I spent eternity in. It was about my, what I did with my life right now.
1: Mm-hmm. And so this
0: constant pressure of, am I doing enough to avoid, or am I doing enough to, you know, obtain these ideas? And so it's not, I'm not, and I I can speak for Hetty in this, I'm sure we're not pathologizing or shaming folks who have insecurity, fear, anxiety around death, but really just providing an opportunity for people to just pause for a second, right? I want to bring us back to the three questions that I encourage people to consider when they encounter a new belief. So maybe that belief right now is like death. The first question, where did I learn it? Who told me that? You Mm -hmm. know, let's explore where the narratives we hold are coming from. The second question is, is it true slash is it still true? And then the third is who's being harmed and who's being helped by, by my belief in this. And I just think those are important because when you were talking about the opportunity to explore life with your birthday and death with the anniversary of your mom's death. How long after your mom passed, do you think you recognized the opportunity in that and started to actually like use it as this, you know, um, spiritual experience and exercise?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, probably just the last three years. So the first year it was definitely like, I'm feeling all these intense feelings because it's really raw. And I was actively trying to show everyone else around me that I was quote unquote normal. I'm like, I can still do my job. I can still go to friend hangouts. Please don't pity me. I'm still heady. And that really did me a disservice. And it was like a year in or two years in where I just had all kinds of like, uh, mental emotional physical symptoms in my body where i'm just like i can't pretend anymore and i remember spending the next 3 years of therapy solely weekly talking about my mom because i needed to unpack that it was weird cuz every wednesday night after work um folks would be like hey you want to go to happy hour and i'm like nope it's my therapy day and folks who did not understand what i the type of therapy needs that I had at that time, they're like, oh, you could just meet up with us for dinner afterwards. And I'm like, no, I'm bawling my eyes out for an hour. And I'm literally contemplating like my mother's entire life and death and what that means for my own life and death. And so, no, I'm going to go home and be in my feels for the rest of the evening. So it took a minute. And I love that you um gave that framework around the three questions and normalizing like, This is not, I'm not coming from a place of like, check the box. I am okay with death. I like it when I'm behind the wheel of a car and I feel like someone yesterday I was driving, it was raining and someone made a very dangerous move on the freeway in front of me to squeeze in between me and the car in front of me. And I like, I actively felt afraid of like, am I going to die right now? So that is totally normal and it's actually a helpful survival mechanism. Yes. So I think what we're talking about is like, how do we work with this as a spiritual practice for growth? That's all we're saying. We're not saying like
0: death is not scary. Absolutely. <laughs> not saying that at all. Mm-hmm. Um Hetty and I were talking about one, the ages of our parents when they passed mm-hmm. away. Did you say mom, your mom was 57? My mom was 57. She was 57. My dad was a week shy of his 63rd birthday when he passed away. And now that is young.
1: That is young. Like people retire at what? 50, uh, 65, 66 and have another 20 years. Yeah. Like. I didn't, I didn't have
0: that scope, you know, mm -hmm. 17 years ago when he died. It, you know, And I was reflecting on, like, how young we were Mm. when our parents died. You know, I was 24 years old, and one of the things that I was lamenting was, like, man, I didn't have the questions to ask him. All the Mm -hmm. things I want to know now, all the ways I know how to show up, the way that I can see my parents as human beings Mm -hmm. now I didn't have those things back then. And so in addition to wanting more of him and from him by way of like knowledge and wisdom in our, our family story, there's also more things that I want. I wish I could have given him by way of how I show up in the world now that I didn't have capacity to show up then. And that led to the discussion of like. You know, Hetty was talking about this this ritual she has and the grief process. And I was able to say, I did not have capacity or know-how, a combination of both and other things, to truly grieve my dad until February of this year, 2023. And wow. he died in 2006. So I also want to be encouragement for folks. It's never too late. It's never too late ever. Like, it's just not too late to go, oh, you know, and and I, we're talking about the death of our parents, but this can be anything to grieve, right? It's never too late to realize like, whoa, wait a minute. I never fully allowed myself to grieve the loss of that thing, the shift of that thing. And for me, what happened was I was at an Enneagram retreat and one of my really dear friends and I did this exercise And because I I have strong suspicions that my dad was an eight on the Enneagram and my friend is an eight on the Enneagram. And so it was kind of this exercise where, you know, his name is Daniel. He's been on the podcast before. Hope to have him back. Daniel Hughes, you know, he wasn't trying to speak on behalf of my dad. He was just embodying the, the energy of an eight Enneagram. And I was able to say things and he responded. But let me tell you what actually happened. What actually happened is he 100% channeled my father in that. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so the things he was able to say to me, because the biggest barrier that I had in grieving my dad was I didn't have his voice. And what I mean by that is not that, and it's true, I can't, I had a voicemail of his for years and years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And then when I switched Mm -hmm. carriers, I no longer had that voicemail and there's no recording I have with his voice. So that's Mm -hmm. true, but that's not what I mean. I mean, I was so young that, and our relationship was one that I know he loved me and all of that, but I didn't have his voice in that I would know what he would say. You know, when you're close to someone, And you're by yourself, and you think about that person, and you literally be like, "What would Hetty say right now?" I know what Hetty would say because I have that relationship with her. Mm -hmm. My my therapy um, partners and coach partners say that to me sometimes, especially Mm -hmm. relationships. We got into it, and then we were like, "Stop!" What was Shonda say? And they always know the answer to that, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't have the answer to that. I had no idea what my dad was saying so this exercise with daniel gifted me my dad's voice wow. and when it gave me his voice and some of his heart my grieving process is ongoing i also want to say that mm-hmm. this is not mm-hmm. a oh i grieved him in february period no this is like mm-hmm. now i can i can go with the ongoing ritual of grieving him because You know, we're establishing this relationship, even though he's in the ancestral plane. And it was powerful. And then let me tell you, the next day, grief hit me like a semi truck. Yeah. Every nerve felt like it was exposed. I was in physical pain, sobbing and sleeping, sobbing and sleeping, terrible physical pain. The only thing I remember saying was apologizing to Jay. Because when his mom died in twenty nineteen, I was really trying to like be there for him. And he actually thanks me for encouraging him to grieve mm-hmm. But, you know, I thought, yes, I've lost a parent. You know, I felt like I was coming from a place of empathy. I mm-hmm. was not intending to do harm. I was really saying, like, I'm here for you. Don't hold it in and grieve." And mm-hmm. all I could say on that Sunday all day was, "I'm sorry." I'm sorry. I was trying to push you into this hurts. And mm-hmm. he told me, he told me multiple times it physically hurts. And it's not that I did not believe him. It's not that I thought he was lying. I didn't have any judgment about that statement, but I did not understand because see, I didn't cry at my dad's funeral. Yeah, Neither did my mom you said you didn't cry at your mom's funeral Uh, yeah
1: i didn't cry at my mom's funeral either and i mean kudos to jay as painful as it is to lose a parent and i can only imagine how he felt when he um, lost his mom in 2019 but just the awareness and connectedness to feel that pain because i was like you i did not feel the pain until years later and it was like awkward because i'm glad you said earlier, it's never too late because at that time I had no one telling me that. So I'm like, now it's two to five years later and I'm still holding this bag of pain, but I felt like the only place I could express it was in the therapy office. Cause I didn't want to scare people and be like, are you at the, I thought everyone, all, all my inner circle of friends, extremely empathetic and compassionate, supportive when I told them, but there was a voice in my mind going like, they're going to tell you it's old news, get over it. And so, yeah, I totally relate to your experience of just like bawling and feeling that pain. And yes, we are empathetic. We send sympathy cards and flowers and all of that, but it's real work. It takes energy. This podcast is called labor of love. Like love turns into grief. So grieving is a form of labor. And we don't do not recognize that in our society.
0: We don't. And it's so hard. And, you know, I'm grateful I had Jay there by my side, like literally massaging my body through the pain. And it's 17 years later, 16 years later, and if you're not aware of, like, how grief actually functions and how it's a part of our human experience, you'll be like, what's wrong with you? Like, that's that. And I felt it for every bit. And you know what? I realized that every bit of pain, physical pain that I experienced was 16 and a half years of pent up pain that had yes. I had a ritual, had I had you know, people encouraging me to do it, then that could have been titrated over the last 16 and a half years. Mm-hmm. But when I finally made the conscious decision, yes, I'm ready to grieve this. I want to, I'm ready, I'm ready. It all came at one time. So I feel like that's another message for folks. You go into the grieving process and it hurts so bad. So you you, you like turn, you snap it back up and you put it back in. You say, this is too much, but please know it's not going to evaporate. And I'm not saying that everyone is equipped or should, have 24 hours of excruciating pain as a way to release it. But please don't think that putting it back inside, you know, is the solution. I was doing a soul hug yesterday and one of the participants just happened to share going through a lot, you know, had a recent death, but they were at work. Mm -hmm. And I remember someone being like, well, should you take some time off or, but this idea of like, I got to prove to the world. I'm okay. I have Mm -hmm. to prove that I'm still functioning, which takes us right back to the messaging and narratives we get in this very extremely exploitative and racialized capitalistic system that says (laughs) your value is directly linked to your productivity.
1: Oh, girl. Yeah. And then to look back and realize that I'm opting into it because nobody the conditioning was so strong. Nobody needed to verbally say this to me. Nobody. As as my mom passed, I was like, okay, I get the funeral. I get certain days to be sad. And then, ooh, I'm still sad. What do I do with this? And not only am I sad, I'm angry. I'm confused how to navigate a world without my mom because she was a single mom. Um, so I'm like, I now feel orphaned, parentless. I don't know how to do anything. She tried to tell me certain things. And what do I do with all this? But I'm like, I am. I made a decision within my own body and my own mind and my own heart and soul that I'm going to project okayness. And that's crazy to me looking back. It's like, who told you this? You were told this over 25 plus years of conditioning. So you opted into it. And eventually I had to free myself.
0: Come on, that's it. We got into this discussion around like PTO. People Mm -hmm. have it and won't take it. No Mm -hmm. one, the system, the institution, the organization didn't say, you don't get to grieve. Are you kidding me? No, Mm -hmm. No, as a matter of fact, there are people saying, hey, take your time. How can we help? Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. Oh no, I don't need support. And it's, we just, we do. I think the point you just illustrated is huge. We have to look in the mirror excuse me and go how am I perpetuating Mm -hmm. this unto myself right how am I an active willing participant in my own oppression in my own silencing in my own muting of this human experience and in so many ways we do that ourselves and we do that because like you said, no one had to tell us we absorb these messages through our skin, through mm-hmm. our five senses, like we understand that. And so having, you know, starting our conversation, our pre-podcast conversation around grief is is really, I don't know, it's fitting for me because as we transition into our next topic, um, but I wanna make sure you feel like this is a good transition point. Was there anything else you wanted to say? Yeah,
1: I I wanna go where you're headed. And I just wanted to say one more thing about what you just said of like participating in our own oppression. I think that um, none of us wake up and go, you know what, I'm gonna like oppress myself, go with the flow and harm myself to benefit any, everyone else. I think the motivation is like to appear okay is one, to belong. And two, also there's something in our culture about appearing strong in the face of struggle. And what I want to say is it takes a lot of strength to do what you did at the retreat, Shonda, which is to feel all of your pain. And that takes tremendous strength because if that happened to me, I mean, when it happened the year after my mom past i shut it down because i did not have the capacity to go there and then years later i remember i fully felt the pain and i was in the fetal position in my living room in an apartment in a manhattan that i shared with two other folks and i was like i don't even care how they're looking at me right now and one person did come over and just like ask me a question i don't remember but She sat down next to me and just kind of like stroked my hair. And that was probably the most comforting thing because I did not want to talk about it because I felt physical pain in my body and my mind was not in a nonverbal place. And I had to build up to be able to feel that. So I just want to redefine strength here.
0: I appreciate that so much. I want to share some of the outcomes of me feeling that. Mm -hmm. Um, on the contrary of sometimes the narratives we give ourselves of how we're going to be looked at negatively and all that stuff when we got up from that activity that experience what I once saw was not a dry eye in the place
1: mm.
0: and I don't know maybe about 30 people and but what I realized was those tears weren't for me and that's okay Mm. what 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 my bravery and courage did was it gave permission Mm. for everyone else in that space to be open for just a second to their own grief and to this day I mean that was eight nine months ago I still have people coming to me, thanking me Mm -hmm. for that. So we sometimes can believe this um, false narrative of strength gives people permission or Mm -hmm. something for other, that it's a gift to other people. It's not, it's it's not, not. it just reinforces the same narratives that we've had. It, it closes them up because then they go, oh my God. Goodness, if Hetty lost her mom and she's showing up, then me, little old me, who's had this one loss, that that can't compare to that. If she can show mm-hmm. up to work and she can produce and she can do that, then how dare I even consider my own grief? I gotta be strong like Hetty. No, when when we show up in that in our realness in that vulnerability. I would say top three gifts that I grant to humanity is my realness because Uh. in my realness people don't try to be my real they have permission to be their own real and all of a sudden it's like if she can show up real like that Maybe I can, maybe I'm not going to do it in front of on a stage in front of people or on a podcast where people will listen, but maybe I'll do it in my bedroom or in my car or in the shower. It starts to give people permission again to be human and in a culture, in a world and in a society that wants us to be robots.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: One of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves and others is the permission to be human
1: absolutely when you interviewed me on the podcast i said my labor of love is individual my, intentionally tending to my own individual and collective liberation what you just said just encapsulates it all when we liberate ourselves it is a path to liberation for other people of like i do not have to fulfill this whatever trope of the strong person who just lost someone i'm giving myself permission to lose my mind and it's not a permanent thing. I thought that I, if I let myself feel grief because I was afraid of emotional, mental health issues at the time, I thought it would be like a psychotic break from reality. And I'm like... This is a point of no return, so let me not go there. And what I found was a healing journey. And I'm like, oh, you literally can't stay in the fetal position crying for the rest of your life because your body will not allow it. You will get up and want to go eat and pee and drink water. You will want to do other things. You will want to see your friends and laugh at jokes like it's okay. But that fear around going there, it's like it was definitely placed there for a purpose or controlling us to show up productively. And I'm like,
0: Oh, this journey did not go the way they told me that it would go. It it rarely does. I can recall countless times when I've been with a therapy partner or a coach partner and maybe not even intentionally, we don't set out at the beginning of the session to do grief work, but grief arises and we do the grief work and then we get to the end of that session and it's it's almost like they're patting their bodies like oh my god i'm still alive Mm -hmm. that didn't hurt as bad as i think oh my goodness i'm okay and it's like uh uh-huh you Mm -hmm. are and the way the brain works is it 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 will recall all the messages of fear and it'll translate all the sensations in the body into fear and then you do the thing and it's done and then the brain is like wait a minute we didn't die Hmm. That's data. Wait a minute. So there's a chance that maybe if we do it again, we won't die either. And I always liken it to the little kid that's at the top of the slide. And the parent's like at the bottom of the slide. And it's like, come on, baby, come on. And the kid is like, "Mm -mm, Mm -hmm. mm -mm, nope, not going to happen. Now there's a line forming on the stairs and they're like, "Mm -mm." or the diving board was that for me. When I was about 10 years old, um, swim lessons, I swam competitively. But as I was working my way up there, it would become time for us to dive off the diving board. And that diving board looked really, really scary. Mm-hmm. It looked really, really scary. But work your way up. Okay, you see other people doing it. You you see the support. There is a lifeguard. There is an instructor with this long pole that they will extend to you if you get in the water and somehow can't get yourself out. I see all the things and I'm like working my way up. I go up the stairs. I get to the edge of the diving board and I go, oh, hell no. Yeah, no, we ain't doing this today. Nope, nope, nope. But then I turn around and there's a lot of people behind me. So now I'm here. <laughs> it's like, I, I really only at this point have one way down and mm-hmm. I do it. And then it's like, and don't get me wrong. I don't have that like, yay, let's do it again. I have that, oh my God, I survived. Mm -hmm. And then the next time I get up there, when I get to the edge of the diving board, am I scared? Yes. So we have this false narrative. Oh, you did it. So you're going to do it again and not scared? No, I'm every time I got on that diving board, I was scared. But what I remembered is I've done this and I didn't die. And eventually... It became fun. Yeah. But the expectation that you do it once holding all that fear and then it's going to go from there to fun. For some people, that's a thing. But for some yeah. people, it's not. And it's like, can we give ourselves permission to simply have this human experience,
1: mm-hmm.
0: utilize the supports that are around us, be real with our experience, be real with our trusted community. And then we're not holding the weight of it all by ourselves.
1: Yeah. And, and what you just said about fun, I'm like, it's never, it's, it'd be weird to say for me, it's fun to celebrate my mom, the anniversary of my mom's passing, but like in a weird way now over the last three years, I've been supported in therapy and coaching to develop my own rituals. So I like actually look forward to it. Um, in my mom passed, um, it'll be the actual anniversary on Saturday, November 18th. But, um, in Korean culture, we always celebrate it after sundown. So I like took Friday off because I'm going to go grocery shopping at the Korean grocery store. And I'm going to make a, like all my favorite soup and like things that she made for me. And I'm going to like light incense and candles. And I'm going to like, I'm like, I get a whole, it feels luxurious. I think about my mom all the time, but like, I get a whole day to intentionally dedicate to that. And so it's a whole different experience. Does it make me happy that my mom is no longer here on Earth? No, not by any means. But I actually now look forward to it, which is kind of
0: odd. But I'm going with the experience. This I think is it's what beautiful. It to. <laughs> because when we did start talking and I'm like, how was your birthday? And you were telling me I saw the same twinkle in your eye as you were just talking when you said it. And you're like, I actually get to. Yes. Right. We move from I have to to I get to. I mm-hmm. hear the recognition of the gift mm-hmm. that that Friday is going to be for you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we have enough examples of people sharing that story. We have yeah. a lot of people who who get through it, quote unquote, or get over it. You know, yes. someone was saying that to me, I just want to get over it. I just want to get over it. and I said, "Oh sweetie, we don't get over, we get through." Yes. And when you try to go over, You're trying to skip something and, and, and listen, that's coping. And I am not talking down on coping, but coping and healing are distinctly different things. Coping is cyclical. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's going to be that thing that gets you through the moment, the day, the month, the year, the six years, but it's Mm going to cycle back. Healing is the nonlinear intentional painful process that takes you through it. So if you try to get over it, you're going to come back and you're going to have to get over it again. But when you go through it and you arrive on the other side, you go, who not only do you drop the weight of certain things as you're going through, but you pick things up as well. well yeah. And it's just such a beautiful process. Um, it's why I have the shirt cope that has a line through it and then heal like, okay, um, we have coped check done it let's do the active work of healing and so i just think it's so important um and i'm grateful for both of us to be able to share a story to normalize what the grief process can be it won't look exactly like this either of our journey journeys for anyone else but i just i just hope it it's like a glimmer of hope that people uh can go like oh i i can ritualize and normalize grief as a human experience and still be a whole person. I don't know that people always know that.
1: Yeah. And I love what you said about coping and healing the difference, because I really, you just spoke to my experience every year, every moment that at an anniversary that I repressed it, it was the same questions again and they kept cycling back. Now I have new questions because for example, like, me and my partner, TJ, we want to have a child. And I'm like, oh, I was too young to ask like, what was childbirth like for you? Or how did you deal with a newborn baby or things like that? So I'm like, now I have new grief, but it's not, I don't feel stuck in a hamster wheel of like, not this shit again, but the experiencing the same shit, shitty feelings over and over. It was like, I was not ready to go there and I'm not judging myself by any means. I'm looking at myself with kind, compassionate eyes as all of you who may be struggling to open up space for you in your own grief journey. But I'm like, I got what I got. And I was like, why won't this go away? And now I'm on like a different plane of grieving. I'm like, I see where I've been and I don't know what's going to unfold for the rest of my life but it's a new relationship to my mother's death
0: Mm, beautiful hmm that feels yeah that feels really good and now as we continue to talk about grief um I think grief regarding the loss of someone you know you were close to someone proximate to you there's um a generalized acceptability to recognizing grief in that. Mm-hmm. But now I want to turn our conversation to kind of world events and and the grief that comes with that. So namely and specifically what's happening in Israel and Palestine. There's a lot of attention on it now in this moment, though it's something that's been ongoing mm-hmm. um, for a long time. And one, I just want to name the grief in it because I think how I see things playing out is the automatic default to anger and rage mm-hmm. and defense and offense. And I'm not, there's no value judgment, good, bad, right, or wrong to that. But as that default, I don't think we stop and recognize how much grief is underlying that response. So, real quick, I just wanna, you know, I've said this before, but as human beings, we only have five options to respond to stress, threat, and danger. And while these can manifest in a whole host of ways, it really can fall in these five categories. First, we'll flock. That means gaining safety through connection. If we can't flock, we'll move to flee, which is gaining, attempting to gain safety through distance. If we can't flock or flee, we will fight. And fight is about gaining safety through trying to control. Ultimately, we're trying to control what's happening in our internal experience but usually results in an externalizing that control into trying to control our environment or situations or other people. And if we are going to flock, flee, or fight, there has to be at least a little bit of safety present in order to do that. The people I'm trying to connect with, I recognize them as safe. The distance I'm trying to get or withdraw to, I gotta know I got a safe place to go. If I'm gonna fight and try to gain control, I gotta feel like I can actually gain some control. But when there is a lack of safety, we will move to freeze. Freeze is like a momentary or, a yeah, a momentary immobilization. Now, momentary could be a second, like a startle response. It can last decades. But it is this immobility that no matter how much you know you need to do a thing, how much you want to do a thing, how much you say this is what needs to be done, the body is not releasing you to do that thing. You are kind of stuck in this immobilized state. Mm -hmm. Now, while we're in freeze... If some safety, even if it's just a little, presents itself, then we have the options to go back to that fight, flee, or flock. If safety does not come, we might find ourselves moving to fawn. And fawn is where we attempt to gain safety through acquiescing or appeasing people, environments, situations, or whatever that is, right? So when I feel like this, I don't think anybody should get out of primary school without understanding this. And yet, no, so many people don't know it. Because the capacity to increase our empathy and compassion for other people, I believe, really does in some ways lie in our capacity to understand the human experience. So when I look at like, duh, (laughs) when I look at the responses, my judgments around people have dwindled significantly, because I'm able to go, that's a fight response. So people who are creating signs and they are marching and they are protesting the people who are calling congress and government that's a fight response that that is that is a mobilized fight response and then there are people who are distract nope huh what oh now i realize that i really need to clean out my pantry i can't watch the news <laughs> that that that's a flee response right the people who seem like they're doing nothing Uh freeze response. And there is this um, compassion that I have that people are settled into different nervous system responses. Some are in their sympathetic nervous system. That's the fight and flee, right? It's, it's characterized by action. And the unfortunate thing is I feel like if someone is not having a sympathetic response, fight or flee, Uh
1: then
0: they're being judged. That that there is a correlation between non-action and not caring, non-action and lack of compassion. Yeah. And that does not help, I don't think, anything. Oh. No. And this is not to say, and then I'm gonna turn it over to you, Hetty, at all, that you know, I don't have a positionality. It's interesting though. My positionality is humanity. I look at what's happening. And I have so much grief and I don't often use this word to describe myself and I'm still not necessarily using it to describe myself, but I feel like it's a word that people will resonate more quickly with in that like an empath is the word I Mm -hmm. feel deeply because part of my human design it's a real thing I don't know enough about it to I encourage you though if you've never heard of human design look it up find somebody but what I found out about myself is that not only do I intuitively sense other people's feelings but I'm a magnifier Mm. so I can sense it and then it gets magnified within me so when all of this kind of hit the the crescendo and mm-hmm. there was the bombing and then the response, mm-hmm. I slept pretty much for three days Um, outside of like things I had to do. And mm-hmm. this wasn't a freeze sleep. It wasn't I'm avoiding or I'm stuck. It was if the world's pain was at an eight out of ten, I magnified that within my body and I felt a 15. I was mm-hmm. so overwhelmed. My yeah. body, I was so overwhelmed. And so I, I had to rest a lot. But mm-hmm. what struck me is like our the culture we're in says pick a side. Yeah. Pick a side. And if you pick one side, you're automatically against the other side. If you are yeah. pro-Palestine, you are anti-Palestine. Israel if you are pro Israel you're anti-Palestine and I I sat in an overwhelmed stupor crying said I'm pro-humanity yeah like I I do what I I and and my mind was trying to grapple with the atrocities that are happening to human lives and that people are I don't even know if I want to say okay with But there is a a permissibility that people have with, yeah, kill them. And it also gets me that an appeal to humanity is always people talking about, but there are women and children. Oh, my goodness. Women and children do not. Qualify as the whole of humanity. I don't care, you know, or elderly. It's like, oh, look at this vulnerable population, which to me just rips away the fact that we're all fucking human. Yes. And it's not, it's
1: creating this hierarchy. First of all, why is it okay to just kill like men of a certain age that are able bodied? They're humans too. They're integrally tied to those women and children. Also, are you implying that? Like at least for women that were somehow like weaker, I'm like, it, there's so much built into that narrative that I'm just like, yo, we need to all move away from it and recenter, reground in humanity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like I just had to take a deep breath because I realized I was holding my breath. My eyes were wide. Like I was ah. mm-hmm. because for me, my I can't. Hetty is so hard to wrap my mind around it. But it's not just this. It's not just Israel and Palestine. It's 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 everything. It is this world. It is so ghetto down here. It is so overwhelmingly really is. ghetto to me. And I I I vacillate between. I see the purpose and the greatness and humanity to this shit is ghetto, and I want to leave. And I mean that cycles by the minute. <laughs> And so what was really got me thinking, so you we have these things that have become politicized, if you will. I like what you said, life is political, but there are these things. And so uh, we were, our coaching program, let, okay, hold on. Y'all, let me take a breath. I can tell. Ooh. When I start to stutter, maybe this will be helpful for somebody. When we move into that sympathetic response, or even when we move into shutdown, we lose access to the cortical part of our brain, which houses our conversational language called Broca's area. And so for me, what I realized that I was trying to rush and get my next point out, and the fact that I couldn't find the words, let me know that I was still having that heightened sympathetic response. So I needed to slow down, take a breath because if I can settle my nervous system then my nervous system's relationship with my brain becomes one that I have access to words I think that might be helpful for somebody we in the in the state of our passion and it wasn't anger as much as it was like passion and it was a whole bunch of mixed emotions that were in that but we try to do too much from that state and we be trying to communicate and it's not effective. And let me hear, let me tell you, you think you can't talk in that state? You're even worse at hearing in that state, very literally. So thank y'all for letting me demonstrate yeah. that in real time.
1: All
0: right. Ooh. Gonna breathe. Yes.
1: I mean, this is a very activating conversation because it, we're, So much is happening in the world that's activating. And as you said, this is not new. This is a continuation of the same colonial genocidal playbook that doesn't value humanity. And when you see it in your face, in your newsfeed, especially also like what you, what just happened to you, I feel like all of our nervous systems are being flooded with the way that media coverage is going and also the social media dialogue. I've just seen so much vitriol thrown at people for exactly what you were talking about earlier of like, are you doing something? And whose side are you on? I'm like, I'm not sure this is really benefiting the protection of human beings' lives right now. Like you getting into comment wars on Uh, Instagram really is not helping people and you judging people is not only not helping them, it could actively cause someone to flee away from joining from the act of flocking to call for a ceasefire and like stop this nonsense. So I'm like, you're actually detrimentally affecting the cause. And again, I'm not judging you. You are not the problem. It's, we are all activated right now. So let us take a pause and care for ourselves. I know that when in the early days in like October, I was like, oh, I felt so activated because I was like, I better do all of my things and then I better help. And I realized like, I'm skipping my meditation and all these things. And I'm thinking, well, these people who are being like bombed in hospitals, they don't have the right to meditate. And someone told me like, meditate for them. Like, and for yourself, because Hedy, you being grounded, each of us being grounded, we get to show up with more of our humanity. So running around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to do something about it. The energy that started this destruction is not going to heal this destruction. Because a
0: master's tools will not dismantle its own house. No. Right. But I felt
1: that level of guilt taking care of myself because I was like, people are literally dying. So how do I stay in solidarity with me? Maybe if I like suffer a little more and punish myself by overworking and overperforming, somehow that shows that I care. And it's like, no, all that's doing is I'm headed towards burnout and it's really not helping anybody.
0: It's so true. I was just sitting thinking that... The folks in Gaza had their water supply cut off. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then I thought about how there are days when I can get so caught up in productivity that I don't hydrate myself. Mm -hmm. When I sit and think about that, I'm like, come on. I have access. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And yet, no, girl, hydrate. Because now there is a more keen awareness that there are folks who can't. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in Detroit, the Flint water crisis in 2014. It's almost 10 years later, right there. there, And I think of my ancestors who would like, there is a privilege that comes with being able to be present in the moment and to take care of myself in the yeah. way that some folks cannot. And we were on our soul hug call uh, in our last month. And one of our, our peers and family members from our program was, uh formally incarcerated and he shared um how when the water supply and the lights were cut off to Gaza that it reminded him of I believe he called it his central command when he was in was he was in behind the wall imprisoned and this idea that there's one person or one group of people who can hold the life source or life-giving sources away from a person or a group of people, his sharing that connection, it deeply, deeply, deeply impacted me. And the first thing that it did was it caused me to write down a question that I wanted to ask myself. And that question was, whose lives do I hold the switch for? And that brought me to this awareness and personal internal discourse around parenting. How I can look at things that are happening far away and feel really helpless in regards to the impact that me as an individual can have on what's happening. And I can remember the impact of collective action and being in community and it remind it really underscores that even when I try, I am a micro level uh, thinker. <laughs> you know, there are some people who are macro level. They see the big picture. They they can they 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 see the big picture. And me, I can get a glimpse of it, but I live in the micro. And what that meant for me was, while I might feel helpless to literally stand in between the conflict that's happening between human beings, right? In Israel and Palestine, but then I have children. And the very thing that I'm despising, which is the dehumanization of people. Am I doing that? Where in my life am I doing that? So Mm -hmm. I had to go and be like, you know, In parenting, I hold authority and power by nature of the structure of parenthood, particularly in our culture. Think about the times when maybe it happened to you. Maybe you've even done it or you've seen someone else do it. A parent gets frustrated or upset with their child because maybe the child did something that they didn't want the child to do. Or maybe the child didn't do something that they were supposed to do or they didn't perform well. And they say and they withhold food. No dinner until you get it done,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or oh, that's what you want to eat. Where well, you're gonna get this instead? How many times have parents threatened to turn off the Wi-Fi because mm-hmm. their child disappointed them in some way or made them upset? That's where my mind went, and I couldn't make it move. That I am, I am 100% in agreement that collective action. You know, there is uh, Reverend Angel Coyote Williams quote. Uh, Without inner change, there is no outer change. Without collective change, there's no change at all. I very much um, try to participate in collective change by -hmm. participating in in internal change. But I thought how I treat my children is something that I can control. I don't feel helpless in that. When When someone upsets me, when I think about the state of policing and its roots, But I will never call a police person a pig because I recognize that the second I dehumanize, the second someone fails to be human in my eyes, there is no limit to what I can imagine badly happening to that person. Yeah. And, And so I just sit here like recognizing that there are parts of me that feel shame and guilt because I hear this. Is there an official statement from labors of love? Where's your stand? What are you doing? I, I, I hear that. I feel that in my body. And then I also, in my very grounded presence saying I'm loving every day, every day, every, 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 every day. I am loving to the best of my ability. I am loving myself so that I can love others. And that does not, excuse or say I'm not having collective action. Mm -hmm. What it does mean for me is sometimes I think people can get so into collective action that they neglect the action that they have control over right as they are in that moment. Mm. And that feels real dangerous to me.
1: Yes. Thank you so much Shonda for sharing that because I think that so many people will relate. I also had that this of like, oh, my organization, Rosalie Consulting, or my social media platforms, should I be saying something? And I had to pause because first of all, there's tons of amazing um, Palestinian voices, voices of the impacted and folks that are like professional advocates that I'm like, I can actually amplify these voices like on my stories or whatnot. I can take what's meaningful to me is that not only am I honoring someone else's humanity, I'm affirming all my humanity, which means I start with my own humanity. It's when I hear about what's going on, what is happening with me, I am concerned. I am sad. I am angry. There's certain things and letting me, my own humanity move me to action. And that did include calling for a ceasefire politically. That did include donating to folks. And it included, like you were saying, taking care of myself and the people around me and some of, and recognizing with this specific conflict, I am not on the core of the impacted community, but I knew people who were. Some of my coach partners that I had folks on both sides, like Muslim folks that were um, combating increased Islamophobia in their institutions, someone who was a friend who had a friend in Palestine that had like their house bombed out and asking for donations for their community. And then one of my other coach partners is um, an American that was born in Israel and knows people on all sides of like their nephew is in IDF fighting in this um you know war genocide and then they know people who are kidnapped and they also and they're pro palestine they're pro palestine against apartheid and colonization and they know folks in Gaza who are affected and i was like let me instead of responding to this overarching thing, um, call for action that seems really depersonalized and almost like out of the colonial playbook of you are trying to control me. You're taking your idea and you're trying to colonize my mind and body with it and trying to get me to do what you think is the best course of action for me to show up with meaning in my life. I had to pause and be like, no, I am against colonization i'm for rematriation which means honoring the land that is that starts with myself and my body i had to make a commitment to myself like either stay off social media or when i do to have energetic blocks so that people i am not giving permission for people to colonize my emotional, mental, physical experience in this world. So and I went online to get information and to let and when there was an overload, I'm like, I need to stop, but I do want to stay informed because I want to move collectively with the rest of community. But really to show up for humanity, I had to center my own humanity. And I shared this with many of my activist friends. I'm like, I love that you are organizing and creating calls for action. I cannot do everything. And on the timeline you're asking me to do, because I have my own crap going on, you know, like my sister in Korea, her father-in-law has been diagnosed with cancer 3 months to live and she does not have a good support system there. So I'm busy supporting her at the same time I'm supporting all this other stuff. I'm supporting my coach, coaching clients, all of that. And I'm like I have to honor that that is my piece of this overall fabric. And I can we cannot all be the protesters in the streets with the signs and the bullhorns and I'm honoring their labor in the streets by doing the labor that I'm called to show up as.
0: Yes. Yes. To all of that. I, um, I remember I've participated in one March, um, in my life in 2020 after George Floyd's murder and very impactful experience. Um, We got to a busy intersection and kneeled. Um, And forgive me for not remembering the exact amount of time that his neck was kneeled upon. That's how long we kneeled. What strikes me though, is that there were people handing out water while we did that, right? There is a role for so many of us and that's important. I also want to say like, Because our culture in general is so incredibly terrible at and lacks the capacity to hold nuance, personal, individual nuance, like there are people who don't recognize that you can feel happy and sad at the same time. That there aren't people that recognize that you can both like. There's we're back to pick a side. This is why I say I'm a micro thinker. So on mm-hmm. the macro level, we go: Are you are you pro Israel or are you pro Palestine? Mm-hmm. But in our individual lives, it goes: Are you pick? Are you excited about that thing or are you scared? Pick one. Not re- recognizing that they're both sympathetic responses. First of all, excitement and fear can register to the brain exactly the same and it doesn't the body doesn't feel it as a difference it's the story that we wrap around it that's different so because we can't hold our own personal nuance and don't have capacity to be able to hold multiple things being true at once when it comes to these larger things we it's we can't hold hold it so people i i've briefly seen because i have really protected my peace with not being engaged on social media much um In the last month or so. But I've seen like, you know, again, if you're pro-Palestine, you are anti-Semitic. You are anti-Israel. And so there are now uh, Jewish lives that are being kidnapped and murdered and harassed all across the globe. All across the globe. And then there it's the ripple effect, which is why when you say it comes out of the colonizers playbook... That's what I see. I'm like, y'all, y'all wait, time out. I feel like I am this itty bitty, itty, 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 itty bitty voice surrounded by these huge subwoofers and speakers that's going, wait, but can't you see it's all leading to the same end? That's not pro-humanity. This is, it, it's, it just feels so hurt. My chest hurts right now because humans deserve to live. Mm-hmm. That's a full statement. Yeah,
1: we don't need to justify that or explain that. It's a full statement.
0: It is a full statement. And, you know, another thing that happens is, so this, this has been happening. There's this crescendo. And so now it's being broadcast in a particular way. And then there's also the notion that for people who are extremely passionate and impacted by this, I think there's this subconscious belief that all the other things in life stop, like you said, right? I, I We're a small group trying to get Ohio to declare a state of emergency on childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. That work is still ongoing while this is going on. Mm-hmm. I'm still working with individual people who are going through their individual battles, right? There is still racism. There is still homophobia and transphobia and sexism. And that like all of those things don't stop because we're highlighting a particular thing that's happening i have been on on the on the other side of that though where something deeply impactful is happening to me and i'm looking around wondering how people are still living how how are you going on like nothing is happening how how are you still eating and going out to restaurants and going out to movies and how are you still living your life when this thing and so I understand that too like there is so no judgment in what we're saying it's just a reflection of like all the things that I see that people are like I just gotta I gotta keep living my life I gotta keep attending to this cause and then there are people who are deeply impacted saying how could you do that but these are sometimes the same people when something deeply impactful was happening to me or someone else Mm-hmm. continued upon their life and so the lack of memory first of all mm-hmm. we you know it's a very this I'm probably making this word up but like amnesiatic culture mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, our mm-hmm. short-term memory sucks and yeah. and our long-term history is distorted so we are like stuck thinking that every new thing is a new thing oh yeah I mean I think it's so a couple
1: things that, I mean, yes to all of that. And two things that came up for me. One is we are so heavily trained on the binary of like good or, good or bad, um, like heaven or hell. Right or wrong. Uh, right and wrong. Um, guilty, not guilty. Like an event happens, a violent event happens. And it's like, there's only two options. There's no opportunity for healing. It's about like, okay, we're gonna find you, punish you. We've checked the box of dealing with this issue as a society. I'm like, that doesn't work for me. There's a reason why as a domestic violence survivor, I'm still grateful that we never reported my dad to the police because I'm like, that would have added more trauma to my childhood experience. And I'm not justifying his behavior in any way. And I'm glad we found another way to get out of it. But I'm like, I wish there were social structures that actually supported transformation and healing. And I wish I got an apology and behavior change. But I knew I wasn't going to get that from the police and the criminal justice system. So, you know, we are so trained on these binaries. And then we drag it into everything that we do and it's showing up like are you for um are you pro-palestinian or pro-israel or are you anti-semitic all this stuff and what are you gonna do oh i don't see you posting online that must mean that you don't care it's like yo slow down humanity's complex and as you zoom out and look at the complexity and let go of binary thinking you'll see how many things are interconnected so that fight no one who is the um who has experienced oppression marginalization or violence will say um somebody hurting themselves is going to benefit me someone sa- self-sacrificing to the point of martyrdom is going to benefit me when you as well, i mean as a survivor and as a person with multiple marginalized identities, I'm like, the when I lift up the unfairness of it all, it's because I want us all to win. I want to have what you have. And somehow my identities did not allow me to access that. Me saying you should be brought down to my level, it's like all that's creating is more suffering in the world. So those of us who have been through a lot of difficult experiences and have had the benefit of have been supported through healing are probably going to be the most prominent calls like the two of us are survivors and we have healed a lot and we are active healers in all of the spaces we show up as it's like yeah we we are going to call out for the interconnectedness and the humanity of all which is what i also see palestinian voices on the ground doing saying please recognize our humanity, support us, but they're never saying, and don't talk about what's happening in Congo or Sudan. They're showing up in solidarity. So I just want to lift up, like, let's get rid of binaries. Let's lift up interconnectedness.
0: Absolutely. Because also saying, see us as human, stop bombing us, stop taking away our homes. Does not mean and when you have that extra time from stop doing that, go like do some rude shit to like Jewish people and go over to Israel and cause harm. No. And and to be fair, I'm not saying there's no one who's not saying that, because sometimes there are. Mm-hmm. I feel like those voices are the minority mm-hmm. when it comes to people who have the capacity to center humanity. I want to be real and say that anti-Semitism is real. Like it, it feels necessary for me to say. That it exists mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the same way that racism exists, and so many other forms of oppression exist. And I just I feel like um, this is not my lived experience in this lifetime. But I I have maybe it's a previous lifetime, I have this um this aversion to conflict that resides deeply in my body that I have not allowed me often to stop centering humanity and doing the healing work that I do. But I I get this image of me as a small child. That's why I say, I don't even know if it's lifet- this lifetime because it doesn't look like me. I don't even know, if, you know what body I'm in or how I identify, but I'm this little child trying to stand between these really big people who are fighting. It's like a group of people. And, I just get this image that like no faces, it's almost like shadows and they are huge compared to me and they're on either side and I just have my little palms out to the side to both trying to create a little bit of distance and I'm trying to yell like please stop because what I recognize in this felt experience that I'm talking about is that I love them both. I love both sides. Mm -hmm. like there's this deep love and commitment and desire for wholeness and healing for both sides. And I'm like this little person that they're almost trampling over. It's like, they Mm -hmm. don't see me. They can't hear me. They're just aimed at each other. And honestly, like, Bits and pieces of that have shown up over my life, but this is the first time it's become that crystal clear to me. So I wanted to just like say that out loud, but I recognize that I, I think that is something that I hold in my body that if I'm not careful can really, really take me to freeze and turn into this helplessness because it's like, they can't hear me. It's like, I, I'm this close to being trampled myself by both sides, because yeah. they're just so, and I, I just have this, this desire, for people to pause, yes, and breathe. You know, it, <laughs> ground in purpose.
1: Just it, Instead it, of what someone else is telling you to do that you should do.
0: It, it feels. I don't know. It, it feels, um, wild to me. That one, I saw a picture of um, like a a hand-drawn comic of a little boy that I think was intended to be a little Palestinian boy um, whose parent was clearly like murdered or something and based on the picture. And you can see destruction in the background. And then the next picture was presumably that little boy grown up into Hamas right and like how how can people not see this the thing is i i actually do see that i see like in every person perpetuating violence the thing is i do see their little child i yeah. do see their trauma i do see their pain yeah but i cannot pathologize that person when the entire system was created to say in a way to avenge your pain is to take the lives of others yes. like it wasn't a it wasn't a single um it wasn't the thought of one child that led to that it led to a system that provides nuclear weapons yeah and <laughs>
1: it uh, steals land and oppresses people's basic humanity I just want to be clear that I feel you, Shonda, when we're saying we don't want to take a side, we're not saying like, and we're washing our hands of this and we're going to watch you kill each other. That's not what we mean when we say we don't pick a side. We are taking a firm stand for humanity against the systems of destruction because we are watching an entire community of people being annihilated. I mean, that sends chills down my back.
0: It does, and you know, I remember doing during in twenty twenty during some of the riots and looting and all the things and the narrative that was painted. And I, I said then, I get it. I get it. I get it. The voice of the voiceless is often violence. I would be remiss to say that three years ago and be like, no, no, I see it. But just because I see it, this isn't complacency or agreement with, it's like, man, the systems. And that just keeps taking me back to why I don't diagnose as a therapist. Because I refuse to pathologize a person when it is the systems and people's responses to systems that are happening. But I'm just saying all of that to say like, I have to ground myself. I have to put my feet in earth. I have to take deep breaths. I have to hydrate. I have to move my body. I have to stretch. I have to paint. I have to light candles. I have to do all of those things because I do not think the distance between me being grounded in humanity and going off one one cliff in any direction is a very far distance. Oh yeah! I recognize that I live with my toes on the edge of that cliff, just by breathing and living in the culture and the time and the society that I do. So ground when when we're I mean that's a natural human experience, uh, uh, human response to the world we live in. I mean, I don't think people have taken enough time to step back and look at the world we live in.
1: Oh yeah, like we are this- so busy pathologizing each other. I was like, maybe depression, maybe anxiety, maybe post-traumatic stress, maybe ADHD, inability to focus because there's a thousand things. Maybe this is like a normal this is a creative human response to what somebody is experiencing, but we want to diagnose it as an illness.
0: Exactly. Constant inundation with The foods we're eating, Mm -hmm. the polluted air we're breathing, access to clean water.
1: And if you can't relate to people being violent, and this is not to justify it, I think of myself of when I'm like, okay, I'm going to be polite and go with the flow in some situation. I just got here. This dynamic is off and I'm not getting what I need out of it, but okay, I'll go with the flow. And then- like, I'm like, oh, this is feeling not so great for me. It's yucky. Now I'm in resentment. But I feel like I agreed to this um, social contract that apparently I never signed, but I was like born into it. And then I've gotten to a point where I'm like, I need to give people in this situation a piece of my mind. And all they see is me going off. The deep end because they did not see the inner experience of me like trying to evolve with this thing and i'm like and i have been that person because i'm a domestic violence survivor i was conditioned as a young at a young age to shut my mouth and not share my experience so as a young adult i often carried that into my experiences at work at school in group projects whatnot and randomly, like at the end of the year, someone would get a piece of Hetty's mind. I don't practice that approach, use that strategy anymore because I've done a lot of healing work. But people never heard my message. They were like, wow, Hetty. we thought Hetty was cool. But like she fucking cray because she just went off the deep end for some little shit. And I'm like, you don't know that I've been dealing with this the whole semester and I've been pissed off since the beginning. And I shut my mouth and didn't say anything. So when you see folks rioting or doing whatever, like I'm not saying justify their behavior, but we can all ground in our own humanity of we've all had experiences like that. And imagine what it feels like to get your water shut off and you can't move from place to place, like without showing a soldier your identity card, like literally so many things. So let's all tap into human capacity for empathy from our own experience
0: and deep down there are many 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 people who can't relate to the details Mm -hmm. of the struggle but when we go beneath that to the human experience of not being valued and seen as human when like that's where we start to tap in i've seen a lot of projection and deference well what about this and There's just so much. And I I feel like as we start to wrap up, one, I'm just grateful for us talking about it because I I think there are a lot of loud voices in the world. And sometimes folks who don't feel that their voice is that loud just sit in silence and keep it inside because they're like, who do I say this to? I want to encourage people to find your people. Um, An organization that I'm on the faculty for, our motto is find your people, find your practice. So find your people and find your practice.
1: It's a good one.
0: Root ourselves in in humanity, but we got to start by rooting it in our own. I think if you're having a hard time having compassion for the humans that are going through things, I am willing to almost guarantee you have a difficult time finding compassion for yourself. Mm. And so it doesn't feel foreign that you don't have compassion for them or that you have these expectations and why don't they just, because that's the language that you use for yourself. That you, going back to the beginning of our podcast today when we just talked about the grief process and all the ways we had to ritualize the practice of grieving and compassion for self has led us to this place where we can now cr- literally cry. I was crying, cry out our compassion for humanity. So again, yeah. if you have a difficult time with empathy, compassion, and understanding, chances are you're treating the idea and other people the same way you're treating yourself. And so I say to you, you deserve compassion. Oh, you yeah. deserve your basic human needs and rights being met. You deserve To live. And by live, I don't just mean survive. Like you deserve to live. And if you can embody that, then it will not be difficult for you to look at any other human and say, You deserve to live.
1: Yeah. As we wrap up, I just want to also touch on the notion of it's never too late to grieve anything. And in as we are witnessing a genocide, apartheid, destruction, increased acts of anti-Semitism and all the other violence going on in the world. Just like a special shout out to our BIPOC listeners, our women and non-binary listeners, our queer listeners, like folks who are, it's dangerous. This is a dangerous world for many of us to live in. And as you witness destruction and it starts activating your nervous system, I I'm going to guess that part of that is we are um, you are touching on memories of trauma in your own life and in your bloodlines of land being stolen, of people being forced into chattel slavery, like kidnapped and in in like horrific conditions. And so I want to encourage all of us to have self-compassion and compassion with one another and not just scream at each other to do more activist work because that's not how we're going to get free. I can bet that if someone takes time for self-care, including whatever that may be for your specific identity and circumstances in your life, it's going to create even more capacity for them to join the causes that they need to join to transform the world in ways that we need. Agreed. Anything else you want to say, Shonda? I know this was a long one, but I feel like it was necessary. So before I close this out, anything else you want to just share?
0: Just gratitude. Um I want to remind people or maybe tell people for the first time that grief and gratitude are two different sides of the same coin. And we talked a lot about grief, very grief-heavy episode, but I want to highlight gratitude. And for me, gratitude is not find the silver lining, make the glass half full. Mm -hmm. I use the analogy of the binoculars. Many of us walk around with binoculars up to our eyes. And what binoculars do is it takes something that's farther away magnifies it by 200 times and make it seem bigger and closer. Binoculars also take away your peripheral vision, so you can only see that one thing that you're focused on. For me, gratitude is putting down the binoculars, opening up to your peripheral vision and seeing things as they are. Because as they are, there are times when we recognize that it's not all bad and it's not all good, but it is. And there is power in the it is. And the it is does not mean that we accept it and we don't become intentional with making shifts and changes personally and collectively. But what it does mean is we start from a place that's known underfoot, present and grounded, and not this perception of what is. And so for me, that is gratitude. So even on today, I put down the binoculars and I have gratitude that the sun is shining and that I have access to clean water and I will hydrate. I have gratitude Um, for a partner in this podcast who I can be genuine with and who can hold the space for me the way I hold for others. And I have gratitude for a producer who holds us both. Mm -hmm. I have gratitude that we can share our grief and be in it with one another and encourage each other. And I have gratitude for you listeners. We cracked 75,000 today. (laughs) And so just gratitude um, is what I want to leave us with.
1: Thank you, Shonda. So again, we're going to go out on that note. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you and every single time you tune in. Thank you to our amazing producer Jay Sugg and Trey Angel for providing the music and Stephanie J. Spencer for making sure that you get to experience all of this. She is our social media manager. Um, thank you again for tuning in until next time be well.